0: you're listening to the topco business unusual podcast
1: okay so welcome to uh, topco's edition of uh, business unusual podcast and today i'm joined by mike abel from mnc saatchi abel the founder and ceo um, as well as businessman entrepreneur uh, publicist so welcome to the podcast mike really great to have you here Thanks for inviting me, Ralph. Looking forward to having a conversation. We were talking about the bit of art behind you and how inspiring it is. And it's funny that the longer I look at it, the more intriguing it is. And you realize he's wearing glasses and everything. But, but I mean, you're telling me a little bit about the uh, artist earlier.
0: Yes, so it's by an artist called Nelson Makamo. Uh, and this piece was uh, the cover of Time Magazine, one of the covers of Time Magazine in 2020. Uh, And the reason that uh, Nelson paints with people with glasses, spectacles, is because um, of the belief that people that wear spectacles, and you and I are fortunate in this instance, are considered as more intelligent (laughs) than (laughs) average people. I'll take take them off now then. (laughs) As opposed to it just being a reflection of bad eyesight. (laughs) So what he does is he actually gives honour to his subject matter by giving them spectacles. And as a result of uh, this cover for Time magazine uh, today, um, artists like, uh, performance artists like Jay-Z and Beyonce and Oprah Winfrey and Giorgio Armani and many other uh, global icons have got him in their collections. So, you know, Black Coffee won a Grammy the other day, but there are many South Africans that are strutting it on a world stage beyond uh, an Elon Musk. And, uh, and shaking up the planet. And I would say Nelson Makamo is one of them.
1: And, and you're also one, right? Because you're also doing your bit to, to further South Africa. But, Very little. But, bit. But I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I think, I think you're doing some great things, and I think we're gonna go into that a little bit. But I noticed on your website, funny enough, when you go and I was doing research, your symbol is the glasses. And so it's interesting you tell me that story. I I never would have linked it because when I looked down, it talked around the Lord Saatchi and him wearing glasses. And I know that you wear glasses. So I thought that was possibly a link. But is is there a link between the two?
0: Yeah. So um, the glasses that we use as an icon or a symbol are absolutely not those of Mike Abel. I can assure you they are those (laughs) of Morris, the Lord Saatchi. Uh, and uh, seen Morris for the last <laughs> n- well forever really he's worn these owl-like bespoke spectacles that are made for him out of tortoise shell hopefully a not real tortoise shell. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, yeah, You're dropping um, in here. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and so it's always been quite a quirky affectation that we lean into and we use it in a number of different ways. You know culturally uh, diversity our newsletters are beyond the glasses uh, and i guess it's really about um, uh, perspective and insight and looking yeah. a bit further and clarity so
1: that's why we like it as a as an emblem i guess yes looking at things differently all right? and i think that you epitomize that you look at things differently and and, and i mean i wanted to ask you about while we're talking about um, the Lord lord I know that you spent a bit of time with him, and, and so in, the, in your book, you talk around that. But, yes. but I was wondering, what are, what, are the, what are the things that you get from him? I mean, what are the sort of either principles or the lessons that you learned from him? I, I was yeah. telling you earlier that the part in the book where they pitch British Airways and they take on these officers for the day. For me, that was the most amazing story of being up against it and using creativity, a bit of guile. And and so, you know, that really inspired me. Mm, absolutely. So if you had to talk about Morris and
0: Charles Saatchi, and uh, I never had the pleasure of working with Charles because he retired in 1997 uh, and I was uh, uh, working with uh, the Ogilvy Group at the time. Um, but certainly uh, working with Morris, if you had to look at the two brothers, you'd say which word best... Uh, uh, um, it symbol, symbol, symbolizes, thank you, they finally got to it, symbolizes who they are, and I'd say audacity. They are audacious people. They are brave. They are driven. Uh, and uh, and they aren't remotely fearful in how they, you know, will put all their chips on one color. Um, and, uh, and so for me, the other thing about Morris is his ability, as he would say, um, to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, he's yeah. a fishing machine, you know, he has a, a disdain and an intolerance for fluff and for nonsense, and he cuts to the nub of it. So he's been retired now for a number of years from our group, but um, if there's anything that I got from him, I would say it is that um, I guess the intolerance for the ordinary wanting to make a difference. Um, And, um, you know, there was a book written on them many years ago, Saatchi and Sarchi called Chutzpah and Chutzpah. And I think uh, it's a great name because it is that kind of, you know, audaciousness, if that is such a word, uh, to challenge, to probe, and to
1: take risks to break the status quo.
0: Yeah.
1: And some people say, like, it's not reality and then you know we're going to get into a bit of the the reality stuff and then the metaverse. But is it about that? Is it about changing your own perception to change other people's? Because I know that that chutzpah and that being courageous. You've also taken like your pitch to Sun International was you know you went all out sort of and 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 pitched something that wasn't there or possible, but you brought yeah. clients into believing in something that you believed in.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, as you and I know, having grown up in the industry, because you talk about perception, perception is reality. So uh, reality isn't reality. It's how people perceive stuff. And, you know, people have got an amazing ability to believe stuff that is real and that isn't real. You know, almost every novel you read or every movie you watch, you don't say this is bullshit. You go on the journey. You know, you get absorbed into that world. And so um, I'm very interested in, well, I'm far more interested in perception uh, than I am in reality when it comes to storytelling and imagination and possibility. And then I'm very, and then I'm only interested in reality when it comes to making a social impact and difference. Perception has got no, I have no interest in perception. You know, I just saw an article today on we are uh, reaching, uh, I think it's almost a trillion rands worth of investment. Uh, in the country right now and that is fantastic so but my reality is so where the jobs associated with that trillion rand because that's the hard measure so i'm not interested in the narrative i'm interested in how do we bring down 70 something percent youth unemployment and 30 something percent general unemployment so i'm very happy to play in the world of imagination and perception when it comes to marketing and advertising but when it comes to social impact i'm totally reality and fact-driven
1: yeah for sure i mean i think we're going to go into that and and as you're talking about perception and reality i I couldn't help but think of uh, the oscars and will smith and i'm sure you had your views on that as well but um and i've shared my views on it as well (laughs) okay good good but i mean perception and reality We, we we live in a beautiful country and we've got our challenges and I don't think I've met one South African that doesn't um, look at, you know, the, the, the other piece of grass on the other side, if it could be Australia, the UK, Europe, America, and say maybe, and certainly young people, the people that we least want to leave, maybe there's some greener pastures. And, I th- and, and reading your book, it was so so great to sort of get your take on things, and I suppose it's just your view. But but I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit because you know I, I grew up in England and I went to boarding school and I lived in New Zealand and Australia and I'm, I'm overly happy in South Africa and I, and the thought of leaving fills me with dread actually because um, I think it's such a beautiful country. but yeah, I mean yeah.
0: you, oh, you moved on. Well, Fiona, I'm very happy to talk about it uh, and I do, uh, you know, as you know, I have lived in Sydney, which is a very beautiful city, a magnificent city and I do travel extensively and have done for 30 years for business so um, I guess my first observation around it is a lot of people who leave, leave, they don't go to and there's a huge difference um, making a decision to leave something behind as opposed to being drawn to something. Now, you look at America, and I don't want to take anything away from America because they've got lots of unbelievable things there, but it is a country where guns outnumber people. There are more guns in America than there are people. Now, what does that say about uh, a society? You know, that I find deeply, deeply worrying and troublesome, and it will never be solved as long as the gun lobbies uh, lobbyists and industry managed to you know, persuade government that this isn't a problem. And as long as they stick doggedly to, uh, I think it's the second amendment or maybe the third, I think it's the second, which was written in the days of Davy Crockett, where you carried a gun because you didn't want to get eaten by a grizzly bear, not because you needed one to protect yourself from your neighbor. So um, the issues in whichever country you you choose to live and they're going to be amazing things and they're going to be problematic things. And, you know, for me, um, living in South Africa, my ability to make a contribution to society and to make a difference is far greater than it might be in a cosy first world developed market. Um, So, of course, we've got innumerable issues here, but I remember when I was a kid, uh, one of uh, my mom's friends said to her th- uh, about a friend who had just got divorced and remarried, uh, and but I've carried this with me my whole life. She said the only reason that the grass is greener on the other side is because more dogs crap on it. Um, and uh, and I think that's often the truth, <laughs> you know. Um, we're always looking over the fence to see, as South Africans, what's happening in other parts of the world where there is an abundance of riches here in terms of... Um, Agriculture, tourism, minerals, uh, a world-leading constitution, incredible people. South Africans are amazing people, by and large, uh, God-fearing, good quality people. And um, I think that that, uh, there's a, a wonderful life to be led here. And, you know, funny enough, in the apartment that I live in, I've met a number of Scandinavian people that have moved here to South Africa. And when I ask them why, they say they just love the freedom that they enjoy in South Mm -hmm. Africa in terms of social freedoms, in terms of being themselves, in terms of a richness of life that one can lead. And that's just a very interesting thing because you look at Scandinavian countries and you think, well, they exemplify freedom, but maybe not. Maybe there's judgment. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. there's uh, shaming when it comes to taking a, a flight And do you really need to fly for business? I heard from one of the people that I work with. You know, uh, can't it be a Zoom call? Are you happy to put all of those fossil fuels into the environment? I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I don't think I want anybody judging me if I hop onto a plane or not. So I think that there are pros and cons to wherever you
1: choose to live. It's a deeply personal decision. I mean, I I had a couple of neighbours that went there without even seeing it. And so I said, you know, where are you going? What did you think? And they said, no, we haven't been there before, but they picked up. They worked for PwC and then eight days later, after selling everything and leaving their jobs, they came back. They said they didn't like it. And, and, and I think there's two parts to that. The one is, if you're gonna go, like a good interview, like a good, any partnership, any relationship, you want to at least test that, number one. But I mean, also what, what about making it work? I think it's always easy to put in the effort for a new relationship, a new opportunity, but what about the one you're currently in Are you giving it everything?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, my decision to go and live in uh, Sydney was based on a crime incident where uh, there was an armed robbery uh, with my kids at home. And I took one look at this. We are actually at my in-law's house in uh, Nelson Mandela Bay at the time when it happened. And so it was driven by that and we need to go. It's as simple as that. And it's kind of like you know, a bland uh, perspective of, and, and, and I went to go and run the MNC Saatchit group in Australia, which is a spectacular company, and I lived in Sydney, which is a magnificent city on every possible level. And we had a, an amazing life, you know, we could completely replicate our lifestyle in South Africa, but what we didn't have was our family and uh, And then you suddenly think, "Well, actually, my kids are growing up without their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles and their cousins and their friends, and was this really worth it And For me, it was less of an issue because I was going into the office every day to run a big company, and I was very was enjoying that. But for my wife, it was like i 'm living somebody else 's life I'm not living my own life, uh, and I need to be back you know where I want to be uh, and We went to go and watch uh, Lady Smith Mum, Basel. Um, uh, at performing in uh, in the city, as they say, and um, yeah. uh, and Sarah and I looked at one another, and we just had tears running down our faces, and we realised, you know, the beauty and the pull of home, you know, a place where we could make a much bigger
1: difference than where we were. Yeah. So, I mean, and then you came back and I'm just thinking about you came back and it's it's hard to say exactly what it was, but you came back as a startup entrepreneur in every single sense. You got your funding, your team together. And I think, you know, some of the things when I look at entrepreneurs, some are lucky and they succeed once. And I think that um, you were very, very successful CEO in both South Africa with Ogilvy, then at Satchi Saatchi in Australia, and you came back and you had to become this startup sort of entrepreneur. And I wonder what lessons that you took from your corporate sort of gig to now bringing in this new business, because I think South Africa is a land of opportunities, but it also means you've got to do things right. And so um, like you keep on saying about the runway and, and building that runway for an Airbus. And there's only so much runway, there's only so much money that you've got and time before you make it work. So there was many things cascading all at once, these pressures that probably you hadn't had before. And I wonder what were those principles that sort of made you succeed in the way, that, and you have succeeded so phenomenally well. It's, it's really amazing. Thank you, Alf. Um,
0: you know, for me, the first thing is... Um, It's always got to be an element of luck, I guess, you know, good fortune. But it was unbelievably hard. Uh, You know, when I left running, uh, co-leading the Ogilvy Group in South Africa with Nunu Nshengila at the time, you know, we had 900 people across 12 operating divisions. Get to Australia, you've got 450-odd people across five different divisions. You come back and it's just you. (laughs) 12 other people,
1: no furniture, no clients. Um, it's it's hard. hard to imagine, maybe people should go into an empty office and imagine that for a second because That's right. I think when you say it and then when you feel it, there's a whole another world of worry that goes on. Absolutely. I mean, I've got photographs of us sitting on the floor, which you
0: probably saw in the book for the first did, couple of yeah. days until, until some furniture was delivered. And I guess ultimately what you've got is your reputation, you've got your name and um, I guess the biggest shock for me in coming back and starting the company was when some people said to me, you know, Mike, we know you are good, but how good is your company? How good is your agency? Um, and I would say to them, well, an agency is an inanimate object. It's a name. Um, so you are good. Um, and I've always hired good people. Presumably the agency will be good. But it took us about 18 months before we landed our first meaningful client And you've got a vision to build, uh, as as you've alluded to, you know, my international airport to land Dreamliners. Um, And so because of that model, you're burning a lot of money because you're building something big, because you want to to, uh, position your company right from the get-go that you are capable of handling the biggest accounts in the country. Uh, which, of course, I could do because that's what I did when I led Ogilvy and when I led MNC Saatchi in Australia. You know, I didn't want to be a mom and pop shop. I wanted a big business with amazing people and brilliant brands. Um, and it takes time for people to actually say, let's give them a chance, you know. And I was surrounded, fortunately, and have been my whole career by amazing partners um, who share my values and who share my vision, or I share their vision. Um, it's a collective. Um, and so from the get-go, we were called, I guess, uh, Jacques Berger, one of my partners for many years. Jacques and I worked together for about 25 years, said to Jacques, you guys are what I would uh, term a grown-up startup." Um, And, yes, you can be a grown-up startup because with that, you bring all of the lessons with you from your career and from corporate and from structure and, you know, Knowing the ratios, I mean, I was one of the guys that co-created and led the um, integration model for Ogilvy uh, in the mid-90s, you know, where I was lecturing global heads of office on the way I had structured and run uh, the Volkswagen account, which was in those days totally unique, where there was, I refused to accept back then in 1995, that there was something called above the line and below the line and digital and design it was understanding a client's problem innately, and then offering a seamless solution to that problem. Um, and so I've always agitated against, um, I guess, the status quo and the way things are. I've always looked at ways of things being better off, and how do you create something that is more useful uh, to a client? How do you make more of an impact and a difference to their business? Um, and uh, and that's what I came back to do here. but. The minute you start talking a different language to one that they are comfortable with, like measurability, accountability, people would say to me, Mike, why should we give you our business? And I'd say, because we're here to grow your top line. We're here to grow your market share. We're here to grow your brand equity. And people would say, but aren't you an ad agency? And I would say, but isn't that what an ad agency
1: is meant to do? (laughs) And Nando's probably gave you, gave you that, that feedback, right? They wanted not just to have great ads, but they wanted to create impact. They wanted to sell more chicken, basically. Was that, a, was that a big shift for you at the time? Or had you always thought that way? How do we integrate, not just doing great work, but creating great impact? Or, or was well, that something got- that you had to evolve? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that,
0: I mean, if you go back just to like, I guess the early days of of my career and working on a brand like VW where I was aware that the work we were creating at the time was the most famous work in the country and spoken about over the dinner table. But that wasn't really the only thing that made um, uh, the brand grow its market share from 8% to 22% over the 15 years I worked on that business. There were many things that happened at a dealer level, uh, service, sales, Loyalty uh, repurchase uh, that was hardwired into the business, you know, beyond ads. And I've always kind of um, worked that way with clients, you know, from the get go when we started working with um, a, a, a brand new brand called Take Two. Uh, Kim Reed, who was a client of mine at uh, MWeb, he was their CEO um, in my, when, I, when I used to uh, run Ogilvy. Um, we've developed a friendship. And then when he bought Take Two, uh, he came to me and he said to me, Mike, let's uh, do something remarkable here in terms of building the premier e-commerce brand on the continent. Um, and uh, and one of Kim's early observations is, why take two when you can take a lot? Uh, and so we rebranded the company. And one of our early observations is, why was uh, Kalahari not doing well with all of the backing of Anaspers? Uh, and what was the barrier there? And the barrier was, you know, You've always got to look at who your enemy is in business. And if you ask Phil Knight from Nike, who is the enemy of Nike, people will say Adidas or Reebok. Well, that's not the enemy. Phil Knight says the enemy of Nike is apathy. Unless you can get people off the couch and moving, he can't sell more sneakers. And the enemy of kalahari.com was instant gratification. When people want something, they want it immediately. They don't want to wait a week for delivery and so we had this tiny client in the agency called Mr. Delivery, Mr. D. And so I phoned the CEO of Mr. D and I said to him, uh, a guy called Dave Chate. And I said to him, Dave, what happens when your drivers aren't delivering lunch or supper? What do they do? And he said, no, it's a problem for us. It's pretty quiet. And I said, well, not anymore, because when they're not delivering, um, Nando's punt for the client there, they can be delivering tennis sets and tackies and tele and, um, you know tennis rackets and tv sets and whatever else starts with the tee, um and uh, and that was i guess you know a big part of the silver bullet was solving the problem of instant gratification i've been able to get stuff to people within 24 hours as opposed to within a week so you've always got to look at what is the problem so when nando's appointed us to circle back to your question it was absolutely to sell more chicken there's no question about it that's what they do um, and jeff white and doug pace and the guys were Uh, thrilled within um, a a year or two to uh, actually win effectiveness awards uh, on their business where we could see how the advertising actually led to, you know, greater sales. So, of course, the Nando's brand wants to do the most famous advertising in the country. And it's always thrilling for me to see every year that they are the client that other advertising agencies want most. Also worries the shit out of me, but that's a separate matter (laughs) to put that out there. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. beyond the famous advertising, uh, they are going to measure us on their performance at the, at the till. And why wouldn't they? Because that is why they're spending the money. So, of course, they have a huge social impact, and, of course, they talk truth to power, and, uh, and they say things that other people think and don't say, and that's the power of the brand. But when all is said and
1: done, if they're not selling more chicken, then why are they investing the money in advertising? Sure and, and I think most organizations have a similar sort of thing it's like can they help solve the customer's problem and I think you help in many ways solve your customer's problem by finding out who their competition is or enemy is and then and then dealing with that problem and all, or addressing it but i mean you you joined you came back to South Africa you know Jacob Zuma had just been sort of brought in it was after the world cup Te- economically a really terrible time to start a startup in any market you're up against it the competition aren't exactly enthusiastic to see you come back and yet in 12 years you've built up this massive organization you've got eight different divisions what's driving that what's driving that is that is that you is that your recruitment process are you happy to share it or is, is that your, you know, you're such a, a lovely person to speak to and and I'd imagine you're really enjoyable to work with. Is that part of it? Is it the relationships from the custom perspective as well? What What do you think that secret sauce is, Mike?
0: Well, you know, I've had one uh, quote on my wall my whole career and it's by a hockey coach called Jerry Welsh. And the quote says, the people with the best people win. And I think mm. it's. As simple as that. And when you talk about the best people, when um, I hire people and we hire people, I ask myself three questions first. Do I know them? Do I like them? Do I trust them? And when I say, do I know them? It doesn't mean do I know them from before. It means does their track record, do their values, the way they speak, the way they operate, the way they behave, make me feel like this is an authentic person, a good person. So um, somebody can be as brilliantly talented as they like, but if they are, whatever the polite word is for an arsehole, I won't hire that person. I don't want them in the organisation because they talk. So I want people that are kind and have a generosity of spirit and are talented. We talk about hiring for brave and for bright, brave people and uh, and intelligent people. And I ask those questions of do I know them, do I like them, do I trust them before I even get to, do they have the requisite skill for the job? Because if you start with, do they have the requisite skill, then you can easily be misled into hiring the wrong kind of people. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm also have been uh, my whole career, a strong proponent for diversity and for, for creating a sharing culture and an inclusive economy. And so I actually own a relatively small part of a company that has got my name on the door and that I started from scratch. And that is because I wanted to take a lot of people with me on the journey. You know, um, my ambition was never to be wealthy. My ambition was uh, to love what I do and that all else would follow. So um, I think we've been successful because uh, of our partner model. It's not just Mike Abel. Um, I have a number of very, very talented partners that work alongside me and with me, not for me, Um, and that's a very important distinction Um, and that have equal equal say and sway in terms of how we structure our business and who we hire and what we acquire and what we start up. Um, And, and, you know, my first business I started when I was 19 years old was um, in – in Port Elizabeth, uh, with, uh, Uncredor Black Taxi Association. So there it was in the mid eighties. It was apartheid in the country. And here was this, you know, young white boy working out of the townships in partnership with the taxi associations, adver- doing advertising on, on, on taxis, um, which was very, um, successful at the time. Uh, and I did that 50 50 in partnership with the Uncredo Black Taxi Association, because I wanted to make a difference. And I wanted to take people on that journey with me. Um, and I think the other reason we've been successful is because people think we can solve their innate business problems. So we're not mm. advertising people tinkering away at business. We business people who are deeply in love with creative solutions um, to those mm. problems. And I think there's a huge distinction. So. I think a lot of mm. the examples that I've given you um, historically um, and that we're doing for our clients at the moment are because we can shift the needle in terms of how their business performs, not just because mm. we're going to create great ads for them from an awards perspective. And de- I'm not dissing awards. God, I love awards, and I'd
1: love to win more yeah. and more and more. Uh, We've got I that do- on camera, hey, We've got that on camera. He loves awards. Okay. It's our business. I, yeah.
0: do- I love awards, and I'll tell you why, Ralph. I'll t I love awards because... Yeah. That is outside people in the industry recognizing the quality of the work that you're doing. And there's a difference mm. between awards and scam. And often the yeah. two get conflated, you know, yeah. pursuit. but I'm not talking about scam. I'm talking about real work that works, that happens to be of a level that gets that, that recognition. So for me, I have no interest in, in, in bullshit. Um, that, yeah. you know, that that isn't going to change the world. But when you look at, you know, the way we have our, if I look at certainly the Grand Prix that the agency has won, you know, and golds around the world for things like clothing the homeless people through the street store, you know, you're talking about making fundamental differences. When you talk about challenging um, people's names, because only 5% of the world's names are Anglo-Saxon, but the other names are uh, give you your name as a typo when you put in your name, uh, and you solve that with a problem like a name. That one, you know, hashtag write your name exactly, um, <laughs> or, or, or you or you win it for um, challenging um, the uh, stereotyping of Afro through um, the Nando's campaign. Those are things that are very powerful and effective and validating in terms of how that work works. Uh, so for me, ultimately, that's what it's about: is uh, is doing brave
1: work that uh, that grows market share. Yeah, I think we're about what impact we're creating, and I think for us, is a reason for that, is because uh, you know our value is to um, you know inspire the world to do good business. And for for me, the only way you can really do that is some people are lucky in life. You know that you said sometimes there's some luck, and some people don't even know necessarily why they're successful so you get some very successful people who didn't maybe struggle and have these challenges and they're not really sure of why they have success and for us that doesn't really interest us because I think everybody has a struggling moment and it's about how do we help other organizations to to see and to improve and to and to grow but I wanted to talk a little bit quickly around two things one was this entrepreneurial gift that you had at a young age and I'm always intrigued Of successful business people who actually are real entrepreneurs, and you see that when they do have this gift, and how do we unearth that more? Because often, uh, maybe they don't pass school because they're you know they get bored, or they you know they're up to no good. You know, it's quite often that that's the case. Um, and and I wonder how we can grow that entrepreneur. Real base in South Africa because you, you, we speak around business having a big impact on um, society. So, if we're going to have that impact, then we, by default, we need to improve our entrepreneurs. But then, secondly, I can't help but think of you and think of a book I read called From Good to Great, and it talks around a level five leader. And you have all those attributes, and I wonder—is that something that you've learned? Is it something that books like that have taught you, or do you think, is it something like more you- a you're going to clock where it's just it- it's that natural ability, that gift, that surrounding of great people like your father mm-hmm. that has taught you these values and these these leadership lessons? So. I'm very
0: fortunate to have had uh, amazing parents and amazing grandparents. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think they instilled in me a huge, uh, not just values, but self-belief. And I think that that's the greatest gift that you can actually give your kids as a parent is, um, I guess, exemplified by the line that Standard Bank, our client has, which is it can be. You know, mm. that thought that what you want in life, what you dream of, you can go out and achieve. Now, where it gets undone, and I think particularly uh, the issues of modern society right now and a lot of the bull around social media, is to fake it uh, and to believe that that is real. You know, to measure your life based on likes and shares and uh, and all of that stuff which is nice but pretty meaningless um, unless you are living it and doing it yourself. So so for me, um, uh, I guess a lot of my leadership skills come from uh, an orientation of around a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. And a lot of people are scared to light other candles. They're scared to share. I don't believe that... um, you hold knowledge. I believe you share knowledge. I believe you must be generous in what you know and what you put out into the world. I believe in life you get because of what you give, not because of what you take. So um, I think it's those kinds of values. I mean, a lot of, most of what I've learned about management and leadership has been what not to do based on what I've observed. There've been very few leaders that I've looked at and worked with where I've thought, I want to be that guy. More often than not, I've thought, I don't want to be that guy. Um, and this is what I can take out of it because, um, you know, a lot of people believe that uh, trust is earned. I don't believe trust is earned. I believe trust is broken. I give people my trust innately up front, and then it's up to them whether they want to retain that trust and build that trust or break that trust, but imagine living your life as a distrusting person. Um, you never, you never bring people in, and uh, and I haven't bumped my head. I'm a good enough street fighter that if that trust is broken, I know how to deal with it at the time, you know. But I don't. Uh, there have to be some benefits coming from PE, for heaven's sake. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, I don't want to live my. Life. street fighter.
1: I love that street fighter analogy because it's so true. Entrepreneurs are street fighters, right? They're. they're it's got a hustle. You got a. You know, have confidence in yourself and stand up. It's like fight or flight. You've got to fight for what you want.
0: That's right. And, you know, um, when we started our business and for the first 18 months and, you know, you know, I reflect on, on some betrayals by, um, you know, a client or two in my book. Um, and, you know, at certain times you've got to tether yourself to the mast and ride that storm no matter what it throws at you. Um, and that's that's where where, where leadership comes in and, and and just having the resolve and being a good enough poker player, I guess, that even if you've got a bad hand to hold it, you know, and not to fold. Um and uh, and I think that people that don't have self-belief and don't have resilience and aren't surrounded by people that support them. Because the great thing about our partner model is often is when one person is up, another person is down, and we're able to lift that person. You know, as Mm. opposed to just kind of taking the lead from when Mike walks out the lift, is he smiling or is he scowling? And how does that set the tone for the organization? It's far more than that. It's, you know, it's kind of a collective drive. But my other thing in life is I don't ever look at what I don't have. I only look at what I do have. And I think a lot of people live their lives feeling like they are missing out. Um, like they haven't achieved, like they haven't whatever. But if you focus on what you have, not on what you don't, it's a great way to start your day because mm-hmm. uh, it makes you grateful and it makes you focused as opposed to making you uh, disappointed. And, you know, the, that, that saying that you taught as a kid of smile in the world, smiles with you, cry and you cry alone is true in business as well. Nobody wants mm. to do business with people that don't believe in themselves and aren't optimistic and positive and buoyant. And, you know, Jason Harrison accuses me of uh, what is that um, term he uses about um, basically bending the world towards my will as opposed to dealing with reality. It will come back to me what the exact term is. But I guess that's what it is. I mean, I don't, I don't look at a situation, Ralph, and say, well, this is what it is. I uh, look at it and say this is what it could be and how do we make it happen that way because yeah. um, I think that's much more powerful.
1: Yeah. So w- w- when I was, I think, 13, we had a family saying from my father and we were all given signet rings and inside the signet ring, it said it can be done. And so it's so funny when you had this stand because they also a customer of ours as well for our top woman brand So it can be done and it can be. And and I think the second part was always, and we can do it. So it can be done and we can do it. I think it's that having that belief in the future. I I think it's really good to be at this point because in in a way, what what I was really hoping is to sort of share with everybody your success. It's not one-off. It's been for a long time. It's been through many organisations. It's been with many helping many organisations, and then we go to the future. And, the, you know, we, we all want that crystal ball. We all want to look at it. And I think you even explain it in the book. Sometimes you've just got a gut feel for success, and I think you've proven that time and time again. You're award-winning. You've given impact for your customers, for your people, for your organisation. And we've got this thing in the future called the metaverse that no one, well, maybe some people understand, and others just I have no clue or don't choose to think of it. And I often think about the metaverse in a similar way. I think about the internet or maybe crypto, right? Can you educate us for the, for the business community out there why you are so excited about the metaverse and how you feel it's going to help impact their organizations, their world, and, and all of our society? Sure. Um,
0: So, the first thing that I suggest people do is buy a set or borrow a set of Oculus glasses, put them on, and see exactly, you know, what the beginning is. And when I say the beginning, this is the dial-up stage of the internet. where Is that from Take a Lot that we must buy them? Or I bought mine from Take a Lot, and they were okay so buy the glasses thank you for that punt we appreciate it yes um but when you put them on uh you realize uh where this thing is is actually going to be heading and going and your ability to be behind your desk but to be anywhere in the world with anybody in the world you know whether it's social or whether it's business you look at brands like uh, dolce and gabbana and uh, gucci and all of them now. Being part of fashion show in descent, uh in the metaverse, you know, uh Decentraland. And I think that for me, the most powerful thing about it is not the faddish perspective about it, but being able to see how, you know, I'll look at the gaming industry, look at our kids, look at how much time they spend, you know whether or not it is, uh, yeah, is – I'm always fascinated by the way people always want to blow each other up, whether it's on Fortnite or whether it's on um, – Or build stuff. Uh, Call of
1: Duty. Or, or, build, or build things. Like, so you either blow it up or build it and stuff. then blow it up again and build it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. But when you look at the size of gaming and then you look at the size of social media and people that are sharing stuff, uh, whether it's a Facebook or, whether, or Meta, whether it's – Uh, an Instagram or a Twitter or a LinkedIn, it's not much of a stretch to say, and and, and how are we talking now and how COVID has changed the world and Zoom and all of this is to live a life that is a mixed reality life. And when I say mixed reality, I mean here in the physical presence or in some other world, be it virtually like now, or be it in, in the metaverse. And so... I can very clearly see the...
1: And see you're getting noise. excited now, Mike. I can see it's, it's coming. But, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think we're both gifted that we have children. And uh, and having children, what you do is you get a view into how young people think and their behaviour. So, for me, I've got three boys, and one was determined, I'm going to be a gamer, Dad. I'm giving up school. I'm going to go and be a gamer. And then you're, like, completely, no, what, this is crazy. And what, start learning about these things, and then... I think that was the one part of it is that, is that absolute indulgence in this world of growing. And he said to me, Come and watch me, just come in and, and see how this thing works. Yeah. So that was the one part. The, the next trigger for me was there's a, so much documentation around gamification in business and how we're utilizing that gamification to engage people and to give them a different experience from what we did yeah. before. Yeah, and I th- and I suppose the 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 sort of you know the, 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 there's there's that gamification, and then I suppose there's the other one which is the human behaviour, and that for me is is something that's really big, which is people are anxious, people are have fears, and you see that also in young people, they're not as motivated. So to come with you know a, a different view of who you are and and or or, or view how you want to be and yeah. i suppose the last one is the world of sport and learning is how we can now practice you know i saw the 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 liverpool football team they they just won one of their cups and they did it from penalty shootouts and they actually got a i don't know if you saw this got a german phd professor to come and he put on the oculus glasses and they and they actually then worked out how these guys brains are working while they're taking the free kick and now they're reversed engineered and basically got them to calm down and see how their brains are working so there's these new things in terms of sport f1 where people are increasing i suppose their skill set as well from this whole experience yeah yeah no you 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 spot on
0: uh so i also have three boys funny enough so probably quite a similar lived experience but i was completely transfixed when I saw two years ago, the rapper Travis Scott had a concert on Fortnite where 5 million people attended his concert. Now where in history have people had a concert where 5 million people attend? Um, so uh, obviously view when you broadcast, but within a metaverse environment or, or not that Fortnite is, but quasi, yes, certainly uh, quite amazing. Now, um, what does that look like? How does one project forward from from something like that? And uh, if you look at how our kids play FIFA and any of these things, it is about community. They're playing with their friends. They're playing with people all around the world. It's no uh, stretch or an advancement. So when I have, um, you know, in five years' time, you and I might be having this conversation in the metaverse, you know, sitting mm. down having a Harnequin, punt for another client, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and having a good conversation within whichever environment we choose. And for me, the metaverse is so liberating. You know, one of the things that people are grappling with, and it's not something that necessarily our generation, if I could I- include you in that, not that you don't have yeah. far more hair than I do. Um, but no. you know, if if I'm, you know, I'm the lucky one in the family. <laughs> So, if you look at, um, you know, today, kids and identity, uh, you can be whichever identity you want in the metaverse. You know, it's a world where people who have physical disabilities can walk freely. You know, it's a place where people who might not want to live in a country that has a crushing uh, poverty or oppression or whatever it might be, can liberate themselves physically from where they are. You know, the way why we're so excited is we see it as an environment where people from around the world can coalesce around problem solving, around creativity. Uh, We see it where our company, uh, because we are opening MNC Saatchi Able in the metaverse, where we are not confined by geography, uh, where we can give people the same experience, whether they visit MNC Saatchi Able in Ubuntu land, or whether they visit us... um, at number 9 8th Street in Johannesburg or number 2 to Smith Street in Cape Town, it's the same experience. Um, And so we were excited about what that unlocks for our people, the ability to socialize, the ability to bring other people on board uh, and to choose their own uh, realities around that. And I think that is unbelievably liberating.
1: Yeah, I think the first thing we talked about was creating your own reality or what is reality. And I suppose what the metaverse does in many ways, is it stretches that to a whole new level. I I know that you're really big into art. We see the art behind you and we know that you're famous for your art in terms of the offices as well. And so that's really, I suppose, encouraging, but there's this this opportunity called um, NFTs. And so, um, and it's kind of linked to the metaverse in many ways, because people are selling. And I know you've got a gallery uh, on Ubuntu land as well. Um, how relevant is that and how, how are you seeing organizations getting involved in these tokens and, and NFTs with some of their brands? What, what are some of the things that you've seen?
0: Well, I think just to, to finish the circle around that and NFTs come into it as well, but, you know, I think that when you look at uh, retail and how you will be able to shop, for example, in the metaverse, and, uh, you know, try on clothing or go to an art gallery as it might happen or whatever. And you can choose whether you want to buy the NFT or have the original um, physical thing delivered to you as opposed to a digital thing, you know, I guess an analog or digital world. But um, that is, I think, unbelievably powerful in terms of me being able to go to a shop and try on clothing and like how I look and then having a superblest deliver it to me the next day. I mean, how cool is that? And that is where I think a lot of it is going, you know, that if I sit down and I have a beer with you or have a Nando's burger with you in the metaverse but I order it at the same time and it gets delivered to my house, you know, it's going to be that complete combination of I don't want to enjoy my life only in the metaverse. How does it actually impact me in my real lived RRL, in real life, you know? Um, And so I think that is where the real value is going to come because I think people all think of it as a virtual world. No, it's not. It's the world in which you live and how virtual and real intersect at all points in terms of a lived reality. And so if I look at art and the NFTs and I was a late comer to to NFTs and art, and I'm not a convert. uh, So let me me say that in terms of art specific, uh, I do have some. Uh, some nfts and maybe you know if i look at my sons uh certainly my older two are 21 and 19 and they say dad you need to buy some more nfts um my 14 year old i guess is fascinated by it but he doesn't uh push me as as uh as hard as the o- the older two to to shed to rid myself of what i earn every month but um <laughs> the, inter- <laughs> the interesting yeah they're far more enthusiastic but the <laughs> That If you look at NFTs um, right now, so i say to Ricky, my oldest son, but what do I want all of these things on my phone for? He says, no, 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 no. we've got to put up a digital um, uh, frame on the wall over there, and then they'll, just how beautiful it will be instead of having one static art piece to have these lovely Norman Catherines that I bought through Ubuntu Land and whatever, uh, or through Africa Rare rather, uh, displayed. And then you think there is something in that, you know? I think it's pretty cool mm. if I can buy a whole lot of Nelson Macamos, and if this thing was changing behind me throughout the conversation every few uh, seconds and gave you a vast representation of a collection, albeit in NFT form, why not?
1: And so I think a oh, lot it comes of- to the office <laughs> with you. And, Sorry? and- and it comes to meet, and maybe it just comes to offices and meetings with you and it comes you know it, it's it stays with you in in numerous locations i mean is it is it that the hybrid world maybe that's a better definition of this possible future is that the potential because i suppose there's there's good points about the physical and there's good points around the virtual and maybe it's people are aware of the virtual but they're not maybe extracting the full potential from it? Is it is it that?
0: I think it's definitely that. I think that there's an opportunity. I don't think what you want is people to get lost in a virtual world that robs them of a rich real-world experience. But I do think that there is going to be quite a lot of escapism, um, you know, that people find. And and, and and don't we find escapism when we watch a movie or when we read a book how different is it disappearing into another world of, you know, uh, global treason and espionage and whatever it else might be. And for me, it's the same thing. And I, I see no problem if people find a happier life within a virtual environment than the one which their physical environment forces onto them. Why not? You know, if you're mm-hmm. in a, an environment where there's huge drud- drudgery every day in your job, where you have an escape for inspiration, What's wrong with that? And who are we to judge in the first place? Yeah. You know, there is one, there's only one true happiness, and that's to live your own life in your own way, and people should be able to, to do that through that mixed yeah. reality or virtual reality.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I look at it, so I went away recently to Indonesia, and there's a little island I like going to. It's very tranquil. And, you know, I believe that there's going to be those sorts of moments where you can go and and it's that picture of having a bintang and being on the you know, palm trees behind and having that sense and feeling. And, and it is, it's an experience and, and going, being able to go back into that when you're having a bit of a, a bad moment. It's almost like when you go for a run and you're taking that photo of that great view and you're trying to remember it. And so it allows a little bit of that.
0: No question. I think that certainly virtual travel is going to be a massive industry. Uh, and, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see what airlines or tour companies, what destination marketing does with that, where people might not be able to visit you. Uh, and 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 for me, I guess the power of where society is today is it is a sharing economy and it is about making much more things accessible. And it's not just about the 1% of the world's ec- Uh, people having over 50% of the world's wealth, which is despicable and iniquitous and unforgivable. And I'll throw every other word at that. I just don't get it at all. Why people want to hold on to $180 billion versus, you know, changing the world, Uh, you know. But um, I think what it's going to allow people to do is absolutely to lie on that beach in Indonesia and to have that experience. And already, if you look at, as I said, even at the most basic element of where it is right now through those oculus glasses, it's pretty clear where that's going to be in three to five years' time, and it's going to be like being there because already when I put on my goggles, I am in no way in my office. I am absolutely 100% in that rudimentary world that's been created right now. Um, So if you project that forward three to five years, you're going to be anywhere with anyone.
1: Yeah, and I suppose a question is how how do business-to-business type organisations how how would they possibly benefit from something like the metaverse? Because obviously you're consumer-facing. You know, you talk about retail, you talk about travel. In terms of the business-to-business servicing sort of businesses, how do you are you seeing a a play with that as well? Absolutely, I see no difference between B two B and B two C
0: in terms of how this can be brought to life. You know. just because somebody uh, you're dealing with somebody in a in a B2B environment, they don't suddenly stop being warm-blooded people uh, with uh, with needs and with hopes and with dreams. They want to make an impact on their organisation. The reason you're doing business with them is to enhance their company. Um, why would those products and services have any less application through a metaverse environment than through? Uh, a real life uh, or traditional approach. I don't see any, in fact, I think from a B2B point of view, it could be profoundly
1: powerful. Hmm. The meetings and engagements. And, and 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 I mean, when the I suppose the press release came out around Ubuntu land and you're investing in it, and then obviously MTN got involved as well. I'd imagine some of your other customers, the santa Banks of the world will be shortly behind them. But how does an organization get involved? Because I think that there is land, you sell the land. I was trying to find out what the price for the land is. I see overseas, it's like $10,000. I'm not sure what the price is in South Africa for Ubuntu land. Is there a pricing model? So what I would suggest
0: um, for whoever is interested is to get in contact with Mick Mann or Shane Mann at ManMade Media. They own uh, Africa Rare uh, until you own your own plot there. Uh, and, and have a conversation with them about it because, I mean, obviously we did look at, you know, um, the different uh, metaverse opportunities around the world and what they're doing. For me, it was very important to invest in Ubuntu land. Um, and I have no vested interest, by the way, in it at all. So if anybody thinks that I'm punting it because I get a commission or because I have a shareholding, I have no nothing vested in there at all. So I share this entirely the benefit of your viewers. So why we got involved was, I believe, deeply in African creativity and the opportunity of the African continent and the brilliant brains that come from Africa, we've spoken about Makamo. We saw DJ Black Coffee win a Grammy the other night. You look at what Trevor Noah's done. You look at La Duma Makosa and what he's doing with his clothing. You look at uh, brands that are, you know, global famous brands like A. Nando's, which happens to be homegrown, but is now a global brand. And I think at the opportunity for us to have our own Wakanda, if you like, um, and the way Black Panther did capture the world's imagination. You know, the world is... The big developed markets, the Americas, the Europe's, the whatever, they're looking to, towards Africa and they are looking towards Asia for inspiration and for fresh opportunity and for new ways of doing things. And we've got such unbelievable creativity here and talent here, whether it's in business. I mean, you look at South African business people around the world. We are right up there with the best in the world in terms of the businesses we built, in terms of the businesses that we run globally as South Africans, either from there or from here. And I think that there's a profound opportunity for us to look at that, Ralph, in terms of saying, so within Ubuntu land, which does have a strong Afrocentric theme. How do I attract people, uh, businesses in South Africa, people in South Africa, on the continent, because it's not South Africa, it's African, but around the world, African-Americans, people that have an empathy for Africa, people who love our creativity. How do they get on board and move their businesses and some of their social interactions and whatever to this environment? Because for me, that's much more important than being, you know, in one of the big global um, generic pots, I like the fact that this is uh, has an Afrocentricity, and it has a profound opportunity to change the continent.
1: I, I you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, it's for me, it's really it's, it's stark and obvious that South Africans are so talented. The organisations, the people, the culture, and I suppose, you know. We're all fixated. Well, I I would say most conversations around someone's leaving to go somewhere else. And I think it's the biggest pity ever because I know you you just kind of match the lifestyle that you get here. Um, and it's about time that we stop having that self confidence, I suppose. That's what, you know, you spoke about earlier having the self confidence to show off, celebrate and recognize the brilliance that we have here, because I think the world is starting to take notice. I think it's. It's that time now, and so, you know, this metaverse really is something quite exciting um, for all parties um, to get involved with.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that, you know, um, there is no limit to the potential and the possibility. I mean, when you look at a Pretoria boy who was picked on at school and had an unpleasant environment in South Africa, who has gone on to become the richest man, well, depending on him and Bezos on any given day, I think, well, I mean, Putin. he is... Uh, 900 uh, million dollars up just yesterday on his stake in Twitter, which is uh, handy. I mean, it's quite nice to make 13 billion rand in one day. But you look at a guy like, uh, like an Elon Musk who's changing the world. I mean, he's a South African boy. You look at Madiba, who, you know, from um, a barefoot young boy in the hills of Punu, who went on to become the most famous statesman in the world. Um, and I think that there's, the opportunity for South Africans is limitless. Uh, for yeah. DJ Black Coffee to be up on the Grammy stage the other day, you know, he's had no advantages. He's had a dream and he's got talent. And he's put that dream and talent together to create a profound reality for himself. And that is always what uh, gives people the X factor, is not just the belief. And that, for me, is the biggest watch out coming back to this, you know, uh, millennial generation, I guess, is there are profoundly talented young people out there. But... It's one thing having a dream, and it's another thing having the talent to make that dream happen and the tenacity and the drive and the perseverance. And, you know, there's a mystical um, belief called the Kabbalah, and the Kabbalah says, challenge is your only opportunity for growth. And too, pe- too many people are not inspired by challenge, they're beaten mm-hmm. down by challenge. But if you're somebody like myself and you think, okay, I see what's heading my way. Um, And I'm coming through, you know, I'm not going to back off, you know, I have a dream, I have a vision, I see what we want to create over here. So whether it's poverty, or whether it's illness, or whether it's whatever it might be, you need to have the tenacity, the resilience, the creativity and the determination to push through it. Because if you run away from challenge, you're never going to achieve anything.
1: For sure. It's that uncomfortable, comfortable, right? So, you know, no, no, no one wants to get off the couch but it's getting off the couch. It's going to get you healthy and staying on the couch is going to make you very unhealthy. Mike, I mean, if you had to, because I think like you and me, um, I think the future is is bright, but it's scary, right? And so we want to get people into action, uh, certainly with this metaverse. So, you know, we certainly want to play a part in that. Um, we see it as a great opportunity. Like it's for us, it's, it's so obvious. How would you, how would you suggest other people take a pop? One is getting the Oculus glasses. Is there other things that they could do to, one is going to Ubuntu Lance to so go there and have a look. What, what other things would you suggest? What are the things that you did to get yourself up to speed with where things are at?
0: Well, there's a whole world out there just called YouTube, (laughs) you know, where you can find the most amazing videos, lessons, masterclasses, immersions. Great place to start. Go there, watch some of the talks. You know, Ted, there's just so much that is available out there if people liberate themselves to to looking for it. So, uh, you know, within a few days, one can go from knowing nothing to knowing a hell of a lot because the truth is that right now not many people know much.
1: Yeah, and this yeah. is the opportunity, but, but it goes to what you said already, which is a challenge. There's so many resources out there. If you've got a challenge with anything, you have got to stop making excuses why you can't do it and start finding reasons why you, you can. Exactly
0: right. Exactly right. And, and, and there are no limitations beyond the ones
1: you've put on yourself. We're, we're our own worst critic and enemy, I suppose, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, it was so good having you on this podcast. I really want to get you on again. It's been a, a great honor for us, uh, the the sort of the, the king of advertising in uh, South Africa, um, and it's so exciting about the metaverse. It's like it feels like the new crypto or the new Bitcoin or the new sort of web. Like, I, I feel like it's a really exciting time for business. Um, and, you know, we'd, we'd love to, I think, reading your book as well. I just want to show the book. What, what a great book, But uh, um, and, and I think it's packed with so much inspiration. I told you earlier, it was really, for me, I read a lot of books, and so being able to take nuggets out of that book was really important, and I think you it gave that, that sense of having a bit of chutzpah and self-belief and confidence and just following your gut, and I think you really reiterate that quite a lot, is follow your gut. If you're feeling something, go with it. Stop trying to neg yourself out or find the reasons why you can't do it. So it was so great having you on this podcast. Really appreciate it. And we're definitely going to reach out to you because we also, we've also got problems and help. So I'll, I'll be knocking at your door. Um, great pleasure.
0: Great pleasure. And thank you very much, Rolf, for inviting me. I guess the last thing I just want to close on around gut is gut is the most undervalued thing there because your gut is your, is your cumulative life experience intuitively telling you what is right or wrong it's not the moment you know there's a wonderful story of a lady who spots picasso uh, sitting in a coffee shop and she goes up to picasso and she says mr picasso this is a defining moment can't you just like do a little squiggle for me on your napkin and he does it and he passes it to her and he says that'll be five million dollars and she says but it took you 10 seconds and he said no it took me 70 years and that's what your gut is So when people say don't trust your gut, what you're not doing is you're not listening to your whole life experience that's coming to the fore in that moment. Um, So gut feels good.
1: Yeah. Metaverse feels good.